Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Who feels worse right now? Coyotes fans? And I know it's Coyotes fans. No. Or Evan, who is here in this room smelling terrible after 18 holes and lost his very expensive rangefinder. That was probably the worst 18 holes of golf I've played in three years. I was horrendous, and then the last two holes, I couldn't find my rangefinder. Honestly, if it was up to me, I'd say you should have played better and not lost your rangefinder. It was not for a lack of trying. <laughs> I just suck ass at golf. And yet, Coyote... I smell like ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been a great day. Coyotes fans still do feel worse. This saga is weird. We're doing it again. And is this going to be the last time? Anyhow, there's a lot to cover on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Uh, here to talk to you about all things Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, what the hell is going to happen to the Arizona Coyotes, more on the 2023 NHL draft, the NHL playoffs, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, as Brad and I plug our noses, uh, we are going to recap what has happened in Arizona and and uh, the the vote in Tempe that has left that entire franchise in flux, and that's saying something considering that seems to be the state it permanently exists in. Uh, what's next for the Coyotes? We'll uh, we'll hash out what the opportunities might be for them to stay in Arizona, or maybe even more likely go elsewhere now. We're, we're joined this episode by uh, Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. It's about that time of year where we have Scott on and uh, always, always a really great insight into the NHL draft and uh, no different this time around as he lets us know about what to look forward to in the 2023 draft class. And then we'll be back with you to talk conference finals in the South because that is who is in the conference finals. It is the most the southernmost conference finals in NHL history. Uh, really interesting makeups of teams and, and two fantastic series coming up all that and more so uh, before we get into that i want to let you know that uh, the entirety of the winged wheel podcast uh, all of our work to support the jamie daniels foundation uh, our growth into an expanded content universe launching the new show expected by whom hosted by prashant Iyer and sean shapiro that is all supported by our patreon supporters patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast in addition to supporting those things you get great benefits like our Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes where I'm sure you're going to hear Evan tee off, pun not intended. Uh, you get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord, and you also are entered automatically into all of our giveaways. Uh, this last season, we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings home game. The majority of them went to Patreon supporters directly. Patreon.com slash Podcast to join the Dub Dub Club. We thank you all eternally for those uh, who have supported us through that. Brad's ready for this. You are so ready to tee off about this, but let me recap first. What I don't want to tee off. Just going to ask some hypothetical questions. There was a a council vote to essentially approve the arena deal that was proposed uh, to be the Arizona Coyotes' permanent uh, home in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, a deal that was largely privately funded, actually, I'll, I'll say, but not completely. There were tax breaks and things like that. I think without getting into the minutia of it, about 200 to 300 million in, uh, that would fall on the taxpayers in one way or another. Essentially what they wanted to do is convert an old dump that needed to be detoxified quite literally, uh, into, you know, sports entertainment complex, 
housing, theater, et cetera. What is the typical of like the 2000s era arena proposal? Now, the council could have approved this themselves last year. They kicked it to a vote. And I mean, the league and the Coyotes were pretty optimistic and it was not particularly close uh, of a no from the citizens of Tempe. It was 56-44 and thus what seemed like the last ditch effort for the Arizona Coyotes is shot down. They're currently playing in Mullet Arena. The team in the league have confirmed that they are going to be playing in Mullet Arena next season, barring anything crazy happening. Uh, but as of right now, their future is in flux. This is, you know, not out of the realm of possibility. I'll say it's wild, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And, you know, before we dive into what's next for the Coyotes, I want to say this feels avoidable. Of course, the citizens of Tempe will vote for what they want to vote for. I, I'm not going to get into what's actually good for them and what's bad for them. I, I'm, I don't live there. I don't know the finer details of the deal. I don't know the impacts on their taxes. I, none of that. So I'm not going to say, yes, they were right or wrong. But from a Coyote's perspective, I think it was reported that they spend about $250,000 on uh, advertising, getting out the vote, things like that, promotional efforts to essentially get this deal put through, a $2.1 billion deal. The... Uh, Folks who were working against the vote, who wanted the vote no, which was largely backed by um, some pretty strong labor unions, spent $2 million. That's eight times as much against. And they were organized and they worked hard and people are complaining about misinformation campaigns and whatever. And I'm sure to, to a large degree that's true, but they spent eight times as much. They lost. They got outspent, outmaneuvered, outplayed, and now they have no home in Arizona for the foreseeable future. So this just feels like another tale of penny wise pound poor. And now Arizona is at the end of the road. It seems. Do I say it? Go ahead. Say Say the line, Bart. What are we even doing here? And, you know, I, I want to make it clear. This isn't a black and white situation. I understand the coyotes have a ton of diehard fans and, you know, I feel that's who I feel bad for. I don't feel bad for the Arizona Coyotes franchise or their owners in the least. The only people I feel bad for in this entire situation are the fans because, you know, despite all the memes, they're out there. Um, and, you know, they're going to be the ones who are hurt by this. Um, you know, the NHL and the owners are coming out and saying, for the most part, all the right things. The only things they can say uh, today as we record this you know, we're going to play in Arizona this season. We're still committed to the city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to sit here and rip on how stupid that is, but I understand that's all they can say right now. They're, can I interject with one thing? Yeah, go for the it. The league has two reasons to say to say Arizona's going to be playing a mullet next year. One, they need to buy whatever stability and time they can for Arizona's sake. Two, exactly. they're trying to sell the Ottawa Senators for a billion dollars. And if those people making those bids think that there's a relocation effort potentially happening or a very cheap sale for a team that does not have the stability of the Senators. It's like the f- cheap team. Yeah. It's like the Costco brand. Right? They, so it's in the league's interest to keep them off the market for as long as possible. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I'm not ripping on the league and the team for, for the generic you know, nothing burger statements that they have put out there. What I will say is that this clown show has gone on long enough. Like there is no future in Arizona. There just isn't. I, I'm sure they will look at other avenues to which most people who are way more plugged into the situation than I am say there really aren't any feasible ones. There's a couple long shots, but 
you know, there's so many ways you can look at this that is just a huge problem. Now, one, I understand Coyote's ownership got outspent in the marketing for this vote. And there is a fundamental problem in that. But even going beyond that, if Coyote's fans, because there's about, what, 30,000 votes in this? I'm not sure, but you... The, the arena is supposed to hold 20,000 people. If you get 20,000 people to come out on this vote, they, they would have won it in the landslide. They could not get enough fans to be half-assed to come out and vote to keep the team. Well, they which, would have to live in the city of Tempe. That's kind of the point, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Right? So if there is that few people in Tempe who give a crap about the Coyotes, this was never viable to begin with. Because this was my whole point a year ago, two years ago, when this plan said, yeah, you're going to go and spend money on this beautiful new arena. And don't get me wrong. It was a good plan. I, you know, we obviously saw the mock-ups, what it was supposed to be. If done properly and, you know, actually completed, this would have been a fantastic venue, great for the Coyotes, and it would have been half empty. Like, they would have done all of this three years in a college arena, billions of dollars to build something that would have sat half empty, and they would have been here. And this vote proves that. There was not enough people who cared. Now, they have a huge problem because, you know, there's a lot of reports out there that players are unhappy with this situation. The NHL owners are unhappy with this, you know, revenue-sharing leech. Uh, the players are on, on the coyotes are unhappy with the uncertainty around the situation. You know, Clayton Keller's dad's piping off on Twitter for whatever that's worth. Like this has to end like just plain and simple, rip the bandaid off. I understand the logistics of they might have to play this season in mullet arena because, you know, Salt Lake city or Houston or Quebec city or whatever it might be, isn't going to be ready in time. And that's very, very understandable. So I don't fault them for playing the season and I don't fault them for their statements, but behind the scenes, they have to be taking bids. They have to be looking at other options. Like Arizona's dead. Like every dollar spent on trying to keep them there is a waste because this has been a franchise that has existed for nearly 30 years and it has been headache after headache after new ownership, after new arena problems, after all this garbage. And I understand people say, hey, winning can solve this. And yes. Sure, but that's never guaranteed. Just ask Atlanta. The Coyotes have won, made it to the conference finals, what, once in their franchise history? I'm I'm sorry. Like, again, what are we doing here? When you have to work this hard to just keep something alive, let alone thrive, you're wasting your time. It's You have to pull the plug. This is insane. And I'm sure behind the scenes. And again, I'm saying all of this talking like Bettman and the ownership aren't looking at all avenues. Of course they are. They had avenues they yeah. were looking at before this vote even came yeah. to pass. Um, Ryan Smith, who owns the Utah Jazz of the NBA, he's already on, like replied to someone on Twitter asking about bringing the Coyotes to Salt Lake City. And he said it's already in motion in terms of, you know, trying to fielding out options. And... I think it was Andy Strickland reported that a lot of people internally in the Coyotes right now are looking at Salt Lake City as the primary, which would be a, probably a pretty good market for the NHL in that area. You know, it's working in Seattle. Colorado's a great market. So, you know, that northwestern part of the U.S. or just western part is viable. Um, with Salt Lake City looking to make a bid for the 2030 Olympics, that is an excuse to build a brand new giant-ass arena if they get it. So... 
you know, there's no good solutions here because apparently Houston's ownership's not, you know, super hot to trot. Which is so surprising because that's yeah. the perfect market for the, I agree. For the, the sorry, the, the Coyotes. Quebec City is very, very interested as always, but they're in the East. They lack the corporate backing, et cetera. So like there's no perfect market right now. And I understand that. So when I'm railing against Arizona, I, it's not like I'm railing against a Toronto here. And I, I know that. But every one of these other options with the questions they have is infinitely more viable than Arizona is right now. The NHL is a business to make money. The Arizona Coyotes have been a drain on that every year of their existence nearly. It's just crazy to me that, you know, it, it even got to this point, let alone the fact that they haven't immediately pulled the plug, which I understand they can't. The only thing at this point that I'll, I would actually seriously entertain as a possible solution is the new owner of the Phoenix Suns, Matt Ishbia, who is a Michigan State University grad, actually. The the previous ownership in uh, with the Suns, Sarver, he did not want... He didn't want to play nice with any other Phoenix franchise or Arizona franchise that he didn't own or, or could make money from. So they play in what's called the Footprint Center. Uh, if they could outfit that arena, and it would need updates to host the Coyotes and he's willing to play nice and play partner, then by all means, that might be an actual okay solution that I can get behind. But by and large, I think I'm with you, Brad, now that if that doesn't come to fruition, you're not going to find, like, it's just not there. And what has the NHL seen from the, the Vegas Golden Knights and the Seattle Kraken? They print money. They generate new fans and, and new markets or markets that weren't tapped into the NHL and opening up their wallets for jerseys and merch and gate and food and whatever, which is why Quebec City is not going to be the top of the list. Eastern Conference and, and imbalance, that's... Um, that's an excuse. The NHL doesn't actually care for the procedural part of it. They'll work their way around that. It's because it it's not going to create new money for the league. Those are uh, rabid hockey fans in Canada and Quebec. They are spending their money on hockey already. And the Canadian dollar is worth less. If they can open up a market in Houston, if they can open up a market in Salt Lake City, if they can open up a market, I don't really, I don't know how much I buy into this one, but Atlanta is now, somehow Atlanta has returned. Like it's, there are so many places that are well, that are wanting to jump in and professional sports teams aren't easy to acquire and they can see that the NHL has an opportunity here. If I if I'm Gary Bettman, aside from, you know, talking to Ishbia and seeing if he's willing to play ball here, no pun intended, I'm going hard at Houston and I'm trying to find a way to to pivot this so that this can now be a franchise that's going to generate money like um the Golden Knights and the Kraken. That's just where, where you're at. The, the road, you've run out of runway. I, I woke up this morning and opened up Twitter with one eye open. And I was, the first thing I saw was this vote in Tempe not going through. And I was like, I thought this was for sure going to happen. Like it made too much sense. And like, it was such a nice sweetheart deal for the city to take it. I was just, I haven't like totally come down to earth from reading that, you know, it's like, yeah. if you're not going to take that deal, you're not going to take any deal. Like, it's just not going to work. And the whole situation, <laughs> I mean, we've talked 
at length every single time the Arizona Coyotes kind of stumble their way through the door. Um, there's cities out there who are welcome, want to welcome an NHL team, have huge uh, arenas ready to go. Uh, I, you know what? I feel bad for the players. I feel terrible for the fans because players have to uproot their lives. Uh, fans lose their team, but you know, if we've done it in Atlanta a couple of times, we may as well just do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta, that one fails. It goes back to to uh, Arizona because all of a sudden they have the approved arena deal there, and in 15 years they go to Kansas City, and then after that, yeah, it's just going to play hot potato. But the one, like the one point you brought up about the Suns owner is a good one, but it also, you know, neglects one thing right now. The Coyotes don't have a fan base in Phoenix because when was the last time they played there? Like, is if I'm the Suns owner, there is zero chance I'm spending hundreds of millions of dollars to retrofit my arena uh, for an arena that I think would be half full. Well, and, and again, some of Coyote- that would come from the league. Some of that would come from the Coyotes. No, I understand, but also, man, like winning cures all. Like I understand that. You look at a lot of the markets. Dallas has been a phenomenal hockey market, and the Stars are a competitive team way more often than they're not. You know, Tampa Bay, the California teams, uh, Vegas. Southern markets can work and can thrive. I, I've fully bought into it's more about ownership than it is location. At this point, if you market a team properly and ice a competitive team, you can succeed basically anywhere. Uh, one, we've heard all the stories about the current owners of the Coyotes, so I have zero faith in them to do anything right. And your point about them barely spending money to get this vote passed kind of more uh, reinforces that more. Also, have you seen the Coyotes roster? Yeah, winning cures all. Not going to happen in whatever new arena they go to. (laughs) This team's going to be awful for years. So if you want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, wherever that money's coming from, to retrofit the Phoenix Suns arena, (laughs) going to be half empty for years. I I, I mean, I don't know the the economy of arena uh, outfits, but I don't think it would be hundreds of millions. Well, however much it's spent, it's going to be money completely pissed away. Imagine they won Connor Bedard and all of a sudden this vote didn't go through. Well, How- the NHL must the conspiracy theory. NHL knew it wasn't going to go through, so they rigged it for Chicago. Yeah, they kept Arizona away. S- someone actually asked me a good question today that I think uh, would have brought an interesting point. If Arizona won the draft lottery, does this vote go through? I don't think the, the people who voted no against it give a shit about Connor Bedard. But would more Curtis. people have come out to vote? Yeah. But um, so I don't know if it would have fully swung it, but. For me, this was kind of the one defensive Gary Bettman you can have because if he was going to rig the draft lottery, Arizona was who was going to be getting them. There's what we're about to become over less popular than disc golf at this rate. Cut the cord, cut the Mickey Mouse BS, and and become a real league. Like stop, stop doing all this garbage. Yeah. Just, just. Admit it, it's not working. <laughs> Everything is pointing towards that. It's time to move on. Get an ownership group who wants to actually make some money and do it by the do it by the books. This is no longer the era of the NHL where you need to send Wayne Gretzky out to California to solidify hockey there, which was a success. This is no longer the era of the NHL where you have to go down to Texas and give them a team and uh, solidify hockey there, which was a success. This is no longer the era of the NHL where people don't know what hockey is. It is the era of the NHL where you're being outpaced financially, which, like it or not, is the name of the game in terms of uh, uh, growing your sport by other major professional sports leagues. Look 
Don't look now, but the MLS has passed the NHL. We're going to be a professional cornhole podcast at some point. <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time, man. <laughs> You have to. You're you're right, Evan. You have to stop with this Mickey Mouse stuff. And I don't say that lightly. I I want. I genuinely want it. Like as much as Brad. Like, and I, I'm not maligning you here. You were saying get them out of there a long time ago, and probably really fairly. I was saying I want to see this work in Arizona because I think it's cool. I want it to work the same way it works in Texas. I want it to explode the same way it did in California. But you you have ownerships ownership groups ready in in uh, Salt Lake City in. Uh, Houston, whether or not they're hot to trot right now, they were at least very interested before. That's a major metro area. Atlanta's interested again. Kansas City, they're Quebec City. Uh, Sacramento apparently has yeah. shown interest it, from a pure, like a hockey pure standpoint. The answer to me is Quebec City, and just make sure Detroit doesn't go back out west because I can't deal with that many ten thirty. It would times. be Columbus probably, but still. But yeah, fine by me. But uh, at this point, I have to agree with you. I mean, this in a different era of the NHL, I could say I can see why you want to hang out here and make it stick. But now that's just not where you're at. You don't have to do that. And you're actually pissing away not just money, but growth of the sport by not sending it elsewhere. Yeah. If the NHL was the NFL or the MLB, it's one thing. I mean, this would not happen. Well, I don't know. I'll let you guys speak more to that, but I would imagine they run their ship a little bit tighter than that. Feels like it. Depends Uh, on the the MLB sometimes. Yeah. uh, The crap with the Tampa Bay Rays right now is a little infuriating. Yeah, that, that (laughs) that is definitely fair, but... Like with the amount of money they generate and the way they run their businesses, uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta copy them a little bit and yeah. you gotta start acting like a big boy. Well, uh, there's gonna be a lot on Arizona coming up, especially as we try to figure out where they're gonna go next. Uh, I like these conversations when we were talking uh, about expansion, but it does make me a little sad when it talks about you know fan bases, uh, fans losing their their team. That that sucks. We are privileged as fans of an original six team that's not going anywhere to never have had that fear. And I was thinking today, if I thought my my hometown's professional sports team that I was like a diehard fan of went away, I don't know what I would do with myself. I was thinking about that too. I was like, imagine we were a Coyotes podcast. Oh my God. What do, what do you do? What if they moved to Quebec City? We'd have to learn to speak French. <laughs> that's the end. That's it for you. I'm out. That's <laughs> where I draw the line. All right, folks. Well, there's going to be a lot to come on that. Um, Coyotes fans, genuinely, we're sorry. This this sucks. Okay, let's get on to some more uh, happy stuff, which is Detroit's two first-round picks, their plethora of second-round picks, and more. Uh, here to talk to us about all that is Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. It's been a while since we've had Scott on. Uh, and he uh, has joined the show today, uh, doing so completely under the weather. So kudos to Scott, who uh, puts on a great show, and you would never know he's sick. So thank you, Scott. Hope you guys enjoy this interview. Uh, it's really fantastic, and you're going to learn a lot about the 2023 NHL draft. It's been a long time, but we're really happy to have uh, back on the Winged Wheel podcast to talk all things NHL draft. Scott Wheeler, good friend of the show. Uh, national national reporter uh, covering the NHL draft and prospects at the Athletics. Scott, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back. It's that time of the year where I start to hear from shows like this that I've been on several times before, and it's always the annual, "Hey, you wanna you wanna run this back again?" So uh, happy to happy to do it, and excited about uh, getting down to Nashville. And I mean, we've got Memorial Cup and and the Combine before that, uh, as far as my purposes go, but. Really excited to get down to Nashville and, and see how this this all plays out. I think this is going to be a pretty pretty damn good draft uh, 10, 15 years from now kind of thing. 
I feel a little uh, guilty now that you put it that way because I don't think we've ever sent you a Christmas card. So maybe we can work <laughs> on <laughs> messaging you mid-season as well. <laughs> no, no, no. That wasn't a shot. That wasn't a shot. I love this time of year. All right. Well, let's jump right into it. We were just talking before we hit record here that Detroit has picks uh, 9 and 17 and what feels like 10 picks in a row potentially in the second round. So <laughs> yeah. what do you see coming up for the Red Wings? I know you've already done a mock draft. You know, they're not going to get Bedard. They're not going to get Fantilli. But uh, what do they have in front of them opportunity-wise in your mind? Well, I really think at nine, you're not likely to see them draft a defenseman. Uh, we all expect that David Reinbacker will be the, the sort of consensus number one D in the draft, will be gone. And then after that, it, they just don't feel like among the teams that's going to take a, a swing on on one of those sort of tier two defensemen in this draft. So an Axel Sandin Pelika or a Tom Willander or a Dmitry Simashev, uh, because of what they've got in Simon Edvinson and Mo, Mo Sider, uh, and because of the, the the need for for some sort of skill at forward and, and some depth at forward, uh, it just feels like they're going to go forward there. So then you've got, there are really two camps in terms of the, the route that they could go with that pick. They could sort of do what they did a year ago and draft a future sort of second, third line center. There are going to be several guys who kind of fit that mold. You could see them take a Nate Danielson, a Braden Yeager, and Oliver Moore. I don't think Dalbor Dvorsky, who would kind of be, I think, be an ideal scenario for them in that kind of a situation, is likely to be there. I think there's a chance that he's there. But really, if he's not, the centers, if you will, are are Braden Yeager, Nate Danielson, and, and Oliver Moore in all likelihood. And then if not, there are tons of wingers. Like they, they could go in any number of directions with, with the wingers there. Uh, I think we do know at this point that they have a bit of a type. Uh, they want sort of competitive, uh, hardworking players. I think that's a, a, a big part of their identity under Stevie Y. So uh, if 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 that's the case, you're probably not going to see them take uh, a player like an Edward Shawley, who is kind of comes and goes in games and has questions about uh, his competitiveness, and uh, you you won't see them sort of take that kind of a swing. Uh, but players like Colby Barlow are going to be there, and uh, you go down the list. There are a number. Uh, Matthew Wood, not a super competitive kid per se, but. Uh, he could be an option for them as kind of a, a scoring winger if they go the winger route. So there are, there's a, there, I think they'll have a lot to consider there. There's just, it does feel like the draft is going to open up after sort of really, I think after, after Philly at seven, uh, I think it's going to be wide open and there are going to be teams in those ranges are going to be considering seven, eight, nine, ten 10 players. Um, they're also a weird one just because they don't tend to draft out of the NTDP. It's just been a, a bit of a weird sort of hallmark of of his of, of Stevie's sort of tenure, if you will. And two of the kids who are, who, in terms of consensus, uh, who are going to be at the highest of, of the quote-unquote consensus list, whether that's NHL Central Scouting or the ranking that we're likely going to see out of Bob McKenzie before this all uh, concludes – are Ryan Leonard and Gabe Perot, of course, right? Who are winger, two very different wingers. Uh, Gabe is an extremely talented, sort of gifted playmaker, and Leonard is the does kind of fit with what you'd expect out of the Red Wings. He's that that driver, that hardworking sort of uh, he's a smaller player at five foot eleven, but a very very strong, stocky, athletic kid who plays kind of a powerful game out of a five foot eleven player and plays to chase hits and to be physical and to 
go to the net kind of recklessly and just plays that sort of bulldog style. So I'll be interested to see whether they, uh, they flip the script there and, and, and go with, with one of those two NTDP kids as well. So there really are at nine there. If, I, th- I think they go forward, but even if they go forward, whether it's center or wing, there are probably three or four options at center and then six, seven, eight options that, that could fit in that range on the wing. So in that range, um, I'm glad you acknowledge that, you know, center is where people look because, you know, me personally, I'm thinking, is this Oliver Moore, um, Dalibor Dvorsky, if, if you believe he's going to stick at center, obviously a great option there as well. Uh, remove all positional bias of like Benson, Moore, Perot, Dvorsky, Wood, Leonard, that range, is there a best player available in your mind? Who among them and, and uh, regardless of their position? Well, for me, uh, in terms of my board, I can tell you right now that Zach Benson is going to finish at my final board, which will be out on June 5th. Uh, he's going to finish it at number six. Uh, so he's quite likely going to be the BPA there. Those those five are going to be gone. I expect that even if Matt Vemichkov falls, that he's gone one pick before the Red Wings at eight to, to Washington. Um, so yeah, the, the the big five in this draft are going to be gone. And then of that next tier of those five or six players that you mentioned, and I think you've got it more or less bang on in terms of that that sort of core next group. Um, I, I would argue in favor of, of Zach Benson. Um, but again, I was the guy who argued in favor of his Winnipeg Ice teammate, Matt Savoy, to the Red Wings last year. And they didn't go that route, right? And and Savoy and, and Benson, believe it or not, actually have a lot in common. Savoy is a much better skater than Benson, but they're both likely going to be wingers at the next level. Obviously, Savoy is a natural center coming up, but is probably going to be a winger at the next level. They both play very, very competitive, sort of bigger-than-themselves games. They're both very physical players, despite being smaller. They're both sort of competitive off the puck, win a lot of battles. And then they're 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 playmakers, right? They're they're drivers. I would argue that Benson is, despite being five foot nine, is the driver on that Winnipeg Ice team and has been for each of the last two seasons. In fact, I would probably argue that he's been their best player at forward in each of the last two seasons, which says a lot considering the talent that that team has had at forward, whether it's Savoy, who I mentioned, Connor Geeky, Connor McLennan. They've gone out this year and added Zach Ostopchuk, who we all saw at the World Juniors, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, he's he's a, an ex- he's he's not what you expect out of a sort of skilled five foot nine winger. He's one of the best defensive forwards in the WHL. He's a two way player. He's all over the ice. He's a sort of energizer buddy out there, and then he's also got the skill. And Savoy is that in a lot of ways too. Just plays a a very hard driven game despite being a little bit of a smaller guy. Uh, Savoy's a couple of inches taller for sure uh, than Benson and a little bit heavier too. But uh, I liked both of those players just to add a skill element uh, to to the, the, the Red Wings' pool. And I'll be interested to see whether they go where they didn't go last year in terms of just the Winnipeg Ice and, and that team and, and those two kids. So uh, that's definitely something to be, keep an eye on because I do think Benson will likely be there. Um, I think you'll see Benson finish at, at on Bob McKenzie's board, for example, his consensus list. I think you'll see him finish at six seven, uh, and then he, as always happens on draft day, uh, small wingers fall. That, that's a tale as old as time. So uh, I think he could go 
even a few picks past the Red Wings. Uh, but he's he's likely going to be my guy there uh, in terms of the guy I would pound the table for. And then after that, I like Oliver Moore a lot. Uh, I've made that clear throughout the year. He's the best skater in the draft. He's a, a dr- also that sort of driver competitive player who who sort of lifts everybody else up and pulls everybody else into the fight a lot like Benson does. Uh, so a, a lot to like about more and just the idea of that speed behind Dylan Larkin's speed as kind of a one-two punch down the middle um, into the future could be a, a really interesting dynamic for the Red Wings if if they're comfortable going with more. So uh, those two guys would probably be the the one-two that I'd argue for. But again, there I, I wouldn't feel super opposed if if they went with a Matt Wood or a Ryan Leonard or sort of went a bit of a different direction either. You mentioned Matt Vemichkov, and, and if he fell, it wouldn't really be past eight to Washington, obviously. We've talked a lot about the Russian connection there, so that makes sense. Now, uh, I think the the consensus uh, uh, against the consensus, so to say, is that, yeah, there's the top five talents in terms of Bedard, Fantilli, Carlson, Michkov, and then it looks like Will Smith, but uh, a lot of uh, big brains like yours are thinking Reinbacher is probably going to be the guy to smash that uh, public consensus comes draft day because that's usually what happens, especially when it comes to defensemen. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what you see happening? And then if so, let's say Michkov does fall, is he the kind of talent where you would, you know, overpay, go balls to the wall just to trade up to grab him if he's a, uh, available for you at, say, six, seven, or eight? Probably not. He's probably not the, the kind of talent that I'm spending premium assets to to move up and grab. I do expect that he's going to be gone at five, six, seven. Uh, I mean, we we heard Keith Jones just yesterday uh, go on air and talk about how they're going to rebuild the Flyers through through the defense. So they're drafting at seven. I think I would be honestly probably pretty surprised if the Arizona Coyotes didn't strongly consider him at six, just because they've gone forward repeatedly at the top of the draft. They took Connor Geeky uh, and Logan Cooley with their first two picks last year. The year. Two years prior, they took Dylan Genther with their first pick. They've they've they're they're pretty well stocked there in terms of what's coming at forward. So uh, I think Reinbacker would make a lot of sense uh, for them there, uh, and even even Montreal at five. If if they're not if if it goes Smith Carlson three four and they're not comfortable with Michkov, then suddenly Reinbacker becomes uh, probably sort of the plan one B or plan one C kind of thing for them. So. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think he'll be gone, and and I don't. I would argue that he's not the kind of just because of the talent at forward, and and not the need necessarily for the Red Wings to. They don't have to go forward there, but it really does feel like that's the right play for them, and like that roster, if it's going to get over the hump, is going to need maybe not even one more sort of high skill guy at forward, but maybe even two. So uh, this is an opportunity to at least get partly there and. Again, just with Sider and, and Edmondson, it does feel like they have two pillars on the blue line that they can build around, and they don't necessarily have that uh, coming at forward. The need for scoring on this team was was really evident this year, and I think there's sometimes a little bit of a um, uh, a misallocation of, of stress wherein a team does poorly in one aspect over the course of a season, and then they look to that next very next draft to resolve it. And we know the pipeline doesn't necessarily work that way. Acknowledging that, that's still the way I'm thinking right now. I agree with you. The Red Wings need that that high-end talent because it just doesn't exist elsewhere in the system. So, you know, consider pick both picks 9 and 17 here, but obviously pick 9 is, is going to be the, the more likely one. Who are the highest 
ceiling players or the players who, you know, aside from the risk that they pose, could have the most impact in that area where, yeah, you're not getting Connor Bedard, but with pick nine, you really maximize the amount of, of offensive talent you can get with this pick. Well, I think if it's about pure goal scoring, if it's about the desire to have have a shooter and add a shooter into the mix, then it's probably Ryan Leonard and Matt Wood. Right? Those those are two guys who can just rip it in very different ways. Leonard just overpowers goalies. He beats them cleanly with how hard he shoots it. And then he also just gets to the net and bangs in a lot of pots and pounces on a lot of rebounds and makes a lot of plays sort of in the dirty areas. Wood is more of a sort of classic sort of not perimeter shooter, but yeah, I always go to, to Tage, Com- Tage Thompson just because they're both tall, lanky kids who went to UConn and, and sort of became first round picks out of UConn. And uh, they have that <laughs> coaching staff at UConn has directly made that comparison to me. So um, obviously Tage is, is even taller than Matt Wood is, but Matt Wood is that sort of six foot three perimeter scorer. I've heard people toss around sort of Patrick Liney in terms of not a super, super quick player, not a super... Um, he, he argues, and he did this with me when I've spoken with him throughout this year, he actually argues that he's a, a very competitive player. And I do think there's some sneaky competitive there, competitiveness there in terms of sort of willing to engage in battles. And he likes to run his mouth out there and get involved after the whistle. He's not shy out there. He's not um, sort of reserved in how he plays, but uh, isn't the, certainly relative to a Ryan Leonard, isn't the the bulldog either. So um, those two guys can definitely shoot it. Woods uh, sort of sh- shoots from the perimeter a little bit more, more of a sort of classic power play threat from the flank, that kind of a thing. Uh, but if it's just in terms of pure offensive upside, like pure point producing, and you don't care how those points come, I would probably argue that Gabe Perot and, and Zach Benson are, are sort of right there as well. Uh, Perot's probably the most purely gifted player. Uh, does come with a, maybe a little bit more risk. I think Benson and Leonard are going to be NHLers. I think Matt Wood's going to be a good NHLer. Uh, Oliver Moore is going to be a good NHLer. There is a little bit of risk in Perot that his game just doesn't really work at the NHL level quite as smoothly as those guys. But I think that if if you're willing to be patient and maybe the Red Wings aren't the team to be patient, maybe they don't want to wait three years and they'd rather wait one year for a, a kid like Matthew Wood, who's already been a point per game uh, player at the college level and likely isn't going to want to stick around much longer if he goes back to UConn and is point per game player again next year. So um, Perot is is he's skinny. That's that's the thing. He's five foot eleven, but he's skinny. He has worked very hard over the last couple of years to add weight. His brother Jacob, who's with the Ducks organization and was a first round pick, is an extremely thick guy. He's obviously the son of Yannick, who was an NHL player for a long, long time. And so there, there is a lot of belief within that family that he's going to fill up really quickly here and get stronger and look like a pro and all of that. And in that, a lot of that has come already over the last couple of years. He was like 130 pounds when he showed up to the NTDP. But in terms of pure talent, like puck on his stick, making defenders miss, making high-end plays, running a power play, the creativity, the hockey IQ, the skill, all of that... Perot's probably going to be the the sort of number one guy, quote unquote, in terms of the players that are available and that that sort of true ceiling. Last episode, we talked about uh, Nate Danielson. We did a quick profile on him, and uh, yeah. I, I think you mocked him to the Red Wings in your first post lottery mock draft. And you cited a lot of things about you know this is a very Steve Eisman type of player, responsible two hundred foot game, seems to be a little bit more ready than other players. 
Uh, but the mm. questions we had were, what are his offensive uh, what, uh, attributes and what's the ceiling to his offensive game? So I was wondering what you made of Nate Danielson and whether you think he'd be a worthy pick at nine or if that's more of a pick 17 uh, uh, kind of guy you'd, you'd aim for. I, I think for me, that would be more of a pick 17 kind of guy, but it, it does feel like he's going to go higher than that. It feels like he's a, because of just how well liked he is, he and, and you kind of touched on it, but he's six foot one, six foot two. He skates really well for that size. A lot of pro details. He's been a captain at, at lower levels. He's been a leader. He's played above his age group. A little bit on the older side, and the production isn't glossy considering he's been in the WHL for three years rather than two. Uh, right, so he's in, he's a 2004 who's produced above a point per game, kind of, albeit on a very bad uh, Brandon team where he had to do a lot of it himself. Uh, so just a complicated player. The statistical profile does not suggest to me that he's a top ten pick, but there are a lot. There's a lot of pro quality there. A lot of belief that he's going to be, if not a, a good second line center, then an excellent kind of productive third line center. And the, the player that scouts who who are fans of him always go to is Dawson Mercer, who in hindsight is Dawson Mercer a top 10 pick? And the answer is, if they did it over, he probably, despite going in the teens, he'd probably be a top 10 guy. And, and 50 point players who are good NHL players and can play in a top nine and make their lines better and play in a variety of situations. Those guys in hindsight normally sneak in just behind the true stars of every draft and are kind of the guys that you'd go, okay, if I'm drafting 10 and 11 and the Connor Bedards and Adam Fantilli's and Leo Carlson's and Will Smith's all hit long-term and they're guys that still go high in the redraft, after those guys, it's typically the guys who have a Dawson Mercer type career. Um, so the question is just, do you want, is that is that what you're looking for? Is that what, are they okay if he, if he becomes a 50 point player rather than a, a 70 point player. And is that, uh, is the safety of, of him becoming that, is that a, a sort of gamble that they'd rather take rather than maybe taking a swing on a guy whose upside in terms of point production might be a little higher, like a Gabe Perot, for example, but who may not, may not have that, that sort of cost certainty. It may not be the the sure thing and may not be, one or two years away, maybe three or four years away kind of thing. So that's the calculation that they're going to have to make with that pick. And uh, I think that it, just because of the way they've drafted in, in recent times, it would be uh, not short-sighted to suggest that they suddenly pivot, but that is, that's the kind of player that they have been drawn to in the past. That doesn't mean that they don't go after a Gabe Pro this time and flip the script and recognize as I'm sure they all do, that they need a little bit more skill. But it does feel like that would be a comfortable kind of Steve Eisenman, Detroit Red Wings selection. And then you've suddenly got a, a strong one, two, three down the middle with two young pieces that project as as sort of second, third line centers. Now, a player who you mentioned might not even be an option for Detroit at nine. Um, a little bit of a mystery because he has a tale of two seasons. Dalibor Dvorsky's all-Svenskin play wasn't uh, all that inspiring, but his international play has been great, which is what I think has uh, shot him up the boards, uh, especially with the U18s. What do you make of him? Is this a guy who's going to stick at center? Is he worthy of of a a top-nine pick? How much risk is in his game? And, uh, you know, if if someone gets him at ninth overall, are they getting away with a steal? I'm a big, big fan of Dvorsky. I've been a, a sort of strong proponent of him all year. It's funny how the conversation about him has gone too, because he was a player who was in the sort of top five discussion two years ago, two years ago at 
15, 16 years old, he was already playing internationally for Slovak, uh, for Slovakia's hockey clubs in terms in terms of the national program there, playing at the Lenka Gretzky Cup. He was more productive than that that stellar age group last year when even when he was playing up with them, he was often out producing the the Philip Mayshars, right? So um that part, even Slavkovsky, he outproduced at, at, at Halinka two summers ago. So that piece of it was really exciting. Then he was a point per game player as a 16 year old at, at the J20 level and got into hockey Alsvenskan games. And there was a real belief that, that here, this kid might be the top five pick before the emergences of, 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 of a Will Smith, for example. He was considered that next guy after that, that big four at the top. Um, so that changed though. Uh, I did, I was, I did a feature on Dvorsky into, uh, into U18 worlds. And right before that tournament, I spoke with several people at AIK, his coaches, his general manager, there, guys who really, really are fond of him and big believers in him. And even they were like, I don't think he's a top 10 guy. I think he's more of a sort of 11 to 20 guy. And that's the sense that I get from NHL scouts. And then he goes in to U18 worlds and, He's one of the best players in the tournament. He drags that team to a couple of upset wins without really a ton of talent on this Slovakia team. This was kind of supposed to be their step back. And then there they were uh, upsetting the Finns and and getting into the medal games and all of that. So uh, he was tremendous. And even then, uh, he certainly sort of catapulted himself into that sort of five, six, seven, eight conversation. And I do expect that he'll be gone now. But even then, he's been cast, and I think miscast, as kind of just this two-way, detail-oriented, pro-style center. And I think that actually misses on a lot of what his game truly is, which is he is unbelievable passing the puck from the half wall uh, on the power play, just the way he saucers it and feathers it off of his backhand and forehand, the weight he puts on it, how high he wafts some of those passes and how sort of flat they land. He can pound his one-timer. There are not a lot of players at 17 years old who are comfortable with their one-timers. He can absolutely hammer it. Um, I think there's more skill there. I think he's been cast as that center just because he's a two. He's already sort of a a 200-pound player. He's six foot one. He's played pro hockey, and I think that just automatically results in this belief of okay, this kid's going to be a, a pro or a, a sort of two-way player. And I think he's got he's certainly got a lot of that. The, his staff with the national teams and with AIK have all praised little details in his game, his stick work, his his detail on face-offs, all of that. So he's he's definitely made an impression as a sort of two-way, well-rounded player. But I think there's more skill there. Um, I, I don't think he's going to be, I always hear these sort of, uh, Michael Backlund comparisons and that type of player. I don't think he's going to be that player at all. He may have some, some two-way quality, but this isn't a, a Selkie kind of guy for me. This is a player who I think has legit sort of offensive upside. Uh, as far as center or the wing, that's tricky. He, his skating isn't a strength. I think it's better than most people give him credit for, but I could imagine that going in both directions, just depending on the team that drafts him and where the openings are in the lineup when he turns pro. And he feels like the kind of guy who could just be a winger his whole career or could be a center his whole career. So I think you have to be open to the fact that maybe he's not a center, uh, but certainly in terms of that that sort of stick detail, face off detail, the two way games, or the two way game, the fact that he is six foot one and two hundred pounds. Um, there's there's a, a strong chance he sticks at center as well. I think. Uh, I'm going to pull us over to defense here, which uh, some people might be groaning 
uh, as they hear me say that. But I think it's worth mentioning, you know, desirable or not for Red Wings fans, uh, there are two right-handed defensemen at the top of the the defense class here this year in David Reinbacher and Axel Sandin-Pelica. The obvious context here is, yes, the, the Red Wings have Mo Sider as their first pair right D, but they also lost... Uh, very productive Philip Ronick in, in the trade uh, at the trade deadline to the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, some people are looking uh, what's in the pipeline to replace him. Well, not much right now. And is one of Reinbacher or Sandine Pelica going to be the solution? Uh, so, who are those players to you? And, and um, I know you mentioned that you don't really see the Red Wings taking um, a defenseman at ninth overall, but do you think this could work at 17? Do you think this could work with as a trade up from 17? Uh, how does this all fit in for you? Well, I think Sandine Pelica could be there at 17, especially with the emergence of, I would add, a third right-handed defenseman in Tom Willander. Uh, I think there's, for a long time, it was just expected that Reinbacher was going to go in the top 10 and Sandine Pelica was going to go quickly thereafter in the teens. Uh, I've had several NHL scouts tell me that they that's the way they thought it was going to go, that Sandine Pelica would go kind of 13-14 and Reinbacher top 10. And now it does feel like there's a chance that Tom Willander of Rogue, obviously an organization that the Red Wings are extremely comfortable with, with uh, Chris and Cam Abbott there and just the staff and the obvious connections through now at least three players. Um, so that piece of it is is interesting. I think Willander, uh, if he's not gone by 17, could be a strong, strong consideration for the Red Wings. Um, he's headed north uh, to north america next season he's expected uh he is it, i don't even think bu's made it public but it's it's common knowledge that he's going to play at bu next year and they're excited to sort of insert him into their top four and uh could he even potentially be a candidate to play with someone like elaine hudson there so um uh, will is a really really interesting player one of the very best skaters in the draft uh, sort of a six foot one defender who just floats around the ice. He's just so smooth in terms of his transition game, whether that's defending the rush and locking it down in the neutral zone or skating pucks up ice and just activating that way. Not a, a very sort of compelling, ambitious player inside the offensive zone. Uh, doesn't make a ton of plays uh, sort of off the blue line and that kind of a thing. Kind of plays a simple game there where he can walk because of his skating. He walks the line really well. He gets his shots through. He's got a decent shot. He, he'll he hit seams and uh, sort of manage the puck at the top of the umbrella on the power play and that kind of a thing, but isn't a dynamic. I wouldn't call him, uh, at, for sure, wouldn't call him a sort of dynamic offensive defenseman. But just a, a stud in every other way, played 30 minutes a night for that Swedish team, which uh, gave the Americans a test and nearly won gold uh, for the second straight year at U18 Worlds this year. Uh, the staff in Rogue really wanted him to stay and we're hoping that he wouldn't go to BU and all of that and just projects kind of as a, as a really good two-way sort of second pairing defenseman at the next level. And those are premium assets these days. So um uh, he's he's an interesting one. I think he's joined that conversation and wouldn't even be surprised if he were picked one or two picks kind of ahead of Sandy and Pelica in the teams there. And I think both of those guys would make a lot of sense for the Red Wings. Uh, Sandy and Pelica is a different player than uh, very different player than than uh, say a Mo Sider or, or a Simon Edmondson, just in terms of makeup, size. He's five foot eleven, but plays a very sort of hard, competitive, bigger than he looks style. Was the leader in penalty minutes on that team on that J twenty team in Skelleftia this year. Uh, looked looked the part when he played uh, with the with the men's pro team. Can penalty kill? Can run a power play? 
sort of an offensive tilt to his game for sure. But he he's a he's a strong defender and and is, uh, can play big minutes at, uh, certainly at his age group. And I think he'll get there at the pro level eventually too. So um, yeah, those two guys, Sandine Pelican and Molander, I think. I'd be surprised if both of them were there, but I do think there's a small chance that that one of them's there, and that the Red Wings strongly consider that, especially if they go uh, center or winger with with the first pick. With the second pick, now I think in a more concerted way, I kind of want to ask is if the Red Wings make both picks nine and seventeen. I'm I'm trying to consider players who could be an option there, and one that isn't talked about a lot. I'm wondering if we should be giving more attention. I know Max Boltman actually has pointed him out a couple times. Is uh, Samuel Hanzek, the the winger, the big winger who uh, uh, had his that uh, laceration that kind of took him off the radar for a little bit. I look at his play style. I look at his profile, and he seems to me like uh, someone who fits the Red Wings mold and what they'd be interested in. Is Samuel Hanzek a, a kind of overlooked player in this draft who potentially could go in the first half of the first round? Yeah, he is. And he's a player that scouts really like. He's a player that that entire coaching staff and management group with the Vancouver Giants have raved to me about all year. Uh, whenever I've been on the phone or texting those guys, they're always talking just about how smooth he made it look. He's, his English was very good right when he arrived. He was very coachable right when he arrived. There was like no adjustment for him in terms of the smaller ice surface. Like he just they all think he's a very, very intelligent player and he just kind of got it right away in terms of where he needed to play, how he needed to sort of lift up his line mates on the smaller ice surface, all of that. So really smart player, obviously six foot four, that's appealing, was productive above a point per game in his first season in North America uh, in the WHL on a team that didn't have a ton of talent around him in, in Vancouver. Uh, they, they've sort of in a bit of a transition period after having moved on from guys like Fabian Liesel, uh over the last year and a half. So yeah, uh, obviously they tr- also traded uh, a staff check at the deadline. So uh, just a, a tricky situation for a first year player to enter into where you're already the guy, you're not really, you don't have playoff aspirations. And, and he was great for them in, in virtually every area, just a really smart, decent skill. Uh, doesn't project to be sort of a high end sort of point producer, but again, kind of in that if he can be a 50 point player, um, or sort of a 20 goal guy and 30 assist guy. Like that's a very, that's a six, $7 million player in the NHL these days. Right. So, uh, and I think there's, there's a lot of belief that he can be that kind of like Pavel Zaka and the success story that he became uh, uh, for, for the Boston Bruins this year. Right. Like Zaka was a top 10 pick. He was kind of cast off as just going to be a two way guy. Uh, didn't sort of live up to expectations with his first club. Uh, and now suddenly he's a very good player on a very good team and an important player in a variety of situations and all of that. And I think the expectation for for Hansik is that that's kind of the player that that he'll become, just a productive, good top nine NHL player who's a part of a, a good sort of winning team kind of thing. Look at the other players in that range. Um, within reason, uh, what would you say are some best case scenarios for Detroit? I'm, I'm looking at Braden Yeager, uh, Colby Barlow, you mentioned Willander, uh, maybe it's a Callum Ritchie or, or Riley Height. Uh, are there players who you think Red Wings fans should absolutely be over the moon for if they're available at 17 for, for the Red Wings? Well, I think you're quite li- quite likely going to see some of the wingers that are very high on my board that sort of linger. I, I it just it, that always seems to happen. I I think the Braden Yagers are likely going to be gone. I think Oliver Moore is likely going to be gone. 
uh, when it sort of rolls back around. And that's not a foregone conclusion. I think there's a small chance that one of those players is still there. Uh, but I do think it's more likely you'll see a winger and winger just I'm running through another Corey and I are doing a joint two round mock draft right now. And we're about halfway through it, uh, sort of going back and forth over the last few days. And it does feel every time I sit down and do one of these and I'll have a, another one for myself right before the draft. Um, but it just feels like you're going to have a Matthew Wood there and an Edward Shawley there. And if they really want to take a swing on some skill, um, that one of those, one of those, I, th- I think Shawley will likely be there. Shawley is one of the most talented players in the draft. Again, doesn't strike me as a Red Wings type per se. And I think that's part of the problem with him is there are a lot of teams that just don't love how he just kind of drifts around and floats around out there and then makes his skill plays when opportunities come kind of thing. Um, but in terms of upside, potential point production, talent, power play upside, all of that, Shawley I think he'll be there and he'll probably be one of the more purely talented players uh, available. So that's a name that I would keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, I, I think you'll see guys like that, the, the, the Shawleys, the Woods. Wood could likely be gone. He, he made a lot of fans in the second half of the season. Uh, you could see a Colby Barlow who's still there, uh, goal scorer. So it would add that, that sort of scoring punch. Uh, not a great skater, but already sort of a pro quality to him in terms of just how physically mature he is. There's been sort of joking uh, around this year about a, a photo that emerged out of the CHL top prospects game where he was the captain and he was sitting next to the coaching staff as a result in the team photo out, out in Langley for the top prospects game. And he looks like he looks like a 35-year-old NHL veteran. If you sat him next to Brent Seabrook, who was involved in that event, you wouldn't know which one was Brent Seabrook and which one was draft eligible, right? So there's, I'm sure there's appeal for a lot of teams in Barlow. He was the captain of his, of his OHL team in his draft year, which is a pretty rare thing in Owen Sound. He sort of chased down 50 goals in his OHL draft year, which is a pretty rare thing. Um, all of that physical uh, works his, his ass off out there. Uh, it's just the skating element and the fact that he's a winger that I think could have him linger to to sort of the teens or early 20s. So those those types of guys, I think the best player in terms of the best prospect available at that stage will again likely be a winger. Um, so if they go winger at their first one, you'd probably be less likely to go back to that well with your second one. But if they go C at nine, then maybe a Barlow or a Wood or even a Shalea as a less likely candidate, maybe one of those guys becomes a, a little bit more appealing. And then Richie's a, you, you mentioned Richie, so I'll touch on him quickly, but Richie and Must, Quinton Musty, uh, two OHL players, very different players. Musty's a winger, really big, like Barlow, very heavy kid, already over 200 pounds, uh, more skill, I would say, in terms of playmaking than Barlow. Uh, but it just uh, sort of looks like a professional athlete already kind of situation with Musty. And maybe there's appeal in a Barlow or a Musty for the Red Wings if they're looking for guys that are maybe a little bit closer uh, to, to to turning pro kind of thing. Uh, and then Richie's an interesting one. Richie's uh, been dealing with a ma- pretty major uh, shoulder uh, injury uh, throughout the sort of latter half of this season. And it sounds like he's going to have surgery this summer on it. Um so that's a factor for teams, but was coming into this year, a potential top 10 pick who's now kind of emerged as sort of a teens or early twenties kind of, kind of guy. He played on an Oshawa team that had virtually no talent. Um, and he plays center, which, which helps. He's got size centers with size typically don't last too long. Uh, 
and just really a lot of detail to his game, a lot of skill to his game. He's got a dangerous curl and drag wrister that he really likes to use often. Uh, is going to be a power play guy, good, on, really good on faceoffs. Uh, has played both center and the wing. Uh, lots of appeal in a player like Callum Ritchie, even with the injury question mark. So yeah, I think those those are the guys that you're you're zeroing in there. I think you're bang on that it's it's a Barlow, it's a Musty, it's a Ritchie. Uh, and then those defensemen that we highlighted earlier, like a like a Willander or an Axel Sandin Pelika, if they're still there. Now uh, the Red Wings seem to have uh, what is a whole bucket full of second round picks in or around the first half of the second round. Uh, so, are there any players with those three picks, provided the Red Wings keep them all, which I don't think is necessarily the most likely outcome? But imagining they do, are there any players who you really like in the second round, or or you think uh, are going to fall out of the first round that uh, the Red Wings could target there? Yeah, most definitely, and it's going to be interesting because it, teams always get, and I think this is actually a, a, has become a bit of a hindrance to having three picks in a row, which it looks like they will unless they move one or or whatnot, but. Uh, Teams get teams like to get cheeky with those, right? Yeah, I think you, you could see them draft a goalie just because they have three. I think you could see them draft uh, a forward, a defenseman, and a goalie just because they have three. I think you could see them draft a player in the two players in that group that maybe people expect in that range, and a third guy that they don't think is going to be available for their third rounder, so they just pounce and take them there, kind of thing. It's not a, a uncommon when there's three picks clustered together like that that a scout at the table says. I know this guy is a guy that's more of a third round guy, but we really like him. Let's let's take him here anyways kind of thing. So there's always that urge when you have that many just to play around with them uh, and to view it as a luxury. Uh, I think more often than not, you'd be better off just sort of not allowing your mind to go there and just focusing on, okay, he, let's just, let's just try to make sure we hit on, we really hit on these. Um, but in saying that there's, a few players who I think could linger that I like a lot. Um, Jaden Perron, a player uh, out of Chicago who sort of fits into that that mold of the types of sort of really intelligent uh, sort of navigators of the ice that that program just seems to crank out. Uh, obviously, Brendan Brisson was one. Sean Farrell was another. Sean Farrell's uh, now turned pro with the Montreal Canadiens and should compete for time there next year. And uh, they 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 are head over heels in terms of their belief that Jaden Perron's going to, despite being a five foot nine winger, is going to be an NHL player and potentially be a point producing one as well. So uh, Perron's a player who I think will will sort of linger in that range. Um, it's again, it's typically the smaller guys, right? Like I think you could well see uh, a Bradley Nado who absolutely torched. <laughs> the BCHL this year and is one of the only players who will likely potentially be available on day two who has legitimate top six upside if everything breaks well. Uh, I think there's a, even a chance that Andrew Cristal, who was one of the most productive players in the CHL this year, and if not for injury, could have had 110, 120 points draft in his draft year, which is more than what some first overall picks out of the WHL have produced, right? He produced more this year than Ryan Nugent Hopkins, a first overall pick, and Nolan Patrick, a second overall pick. And um, he had a truly, in terms of statistical profile, the kind of season that you'd expect a player to go in the top 10 with. But because he's 
five foot nine, five foot ten, and he's one of the slower players in the draft. I think you could see Andrew Cristal around on day two, the sort of start of day two. So uh, those uh, always always on day two. Look at those smaller wingers. We saw it last year with Jordan Dume, right, who went early on day two to Columbus and then got an entry level contract right away when he was the most productive player outside of Connor Bedard in the CHL this year and will be a big part of that world junior team next year and uh, has now sort of completely firmly established him guys himself as a guy who despite being five foot nine and slow uh, like Andrew Cristal is going to play in the NHL and everybody I think expects that that's going to happen now so uh, yeah, just always the small wingers early on day two. And then there, there are some, some if they go with sort of bigger, heavier guys, I think there's a chance that you see guys like Danny Nelson, Kasper Haltonen, Charlie Strammel, kind of the, the men of the draft who aren't quite talented enough to all go in the first round. I think you'll see one of those, one, two of those three guys still available early day two. They're all sort of six foot three, 210 pounds already, like just monstrous physically mature, strong, bulky guys who also have some skill and sort of project as sort of middle six guys. I don't think any of Stramel, Haltonen, or uh, or Danny Nelson are going to be first line, maybe not even second line players, but they're, they're, I think there's a good chance that each of those three players becomes a, a good NHL player. And if you can get that in the second round, that's still good value. So um, I think there's two ends of the spectrum in terms of the players that are typically available. You've got those big, big guys who project as sort of lower event NHL forwards. And then you've got the the little skill guys that typically linger. And uh, by then, normally the, the true premium defenders are all gone. All right, Scott, this has been amazing. I have one more for you. And I know I, I always do this to you, and I, I'm sure you hate it, but I'm going to put you in the GM's chair here. Thinking purely of picks 9 and 17, and in the way you imagine with your best guess the draft is going to shake out, are there any players who you think the Red Wings could or should, I should say, uh, trade up for using their assets because they'll be at, you know, picks six to eight or 12 to 15. And you you think, yes, this guy's absolutely worth uh, overspending for because you want to walk away with him in addition to whoever else they draft. I think the play at nine is to hold it and to, to if it were me, to swing on the talent of a Zach Benson or a Gabe Perot. I think there will be, uh, if, if I were sort of in the chair, there would be more of an inkling to move up from 17 and maybe try to get another one of those guys. I think you can really move the needle in terms of they've got some well-rounded players. They've got guys who are going to project as sort of two-way top nine forwards. If they could add two sort of premium point producers, two skill guys with those two picks, I think that really sort of changes the outlook for what that top nine could look like long-term. And I think if you were to move up from 17 to 12 or 13, that you could well get a Zach Benson and a Gabe Perot. I don't think that's an outcome, uh, that's a reach or a sort of long shot scenario. Now you you have to move up and, and take that swing. Uh, but that's, that's the way I would approach it. Go out and get two guys, two PP one guys, two guys who are going to, to, to sort of put up points and you can surround those guys with the, the heavier checkers, the, the sort of more well-rounded players. Although, as I mentioned, Benson is one of the most well-rounded forwards in terms of two-way play and competitiveness in this draft. Um, but yeah, I think that would be, that would be my best case scenario if I were the one making the decisions would be try and get, get two of the the true skill guys in the draft and the, the most likely sort of candidates in, in that range with staying at nine and moving up from 17 would be something like Perot, 
and then Benson or Benson and then Perot. All right, Scott, thank you so much. I know you're actually doing this while you're under the weather. So I'm blown away by your capacity to just deliver this all, you know, off the cuff. This has been incredible. Uh, folks, this is Scott Wheeler from The Athletic at Scott C. Wheeler on Twitter. Please go follow him if you don't already. And we're going to link to uh, a couple of his articles in the uh, description of this episode. Uh, much like we say uh, always with Max, Scott's work is uh, uh, excellent, in- imperative even at draft time. So uh, worth the price of admission for The Athletic to go read Scott's work. Scott, thank you so much, man. I hope you feel better soon. And until next time. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers, buddy. All right. Welcome back. That was our interview with Scott Wheeler. Again, shout out to Scott for, uh, for powering through that episode. Uh, really, really great insights from him. I loved what he said at the end when I posed that question to him of what do you do uh, in a trade scenario? Do you move up from nine or do you move up from 17? And he advocated for, and I know this is like a, a pretty pie in the sky goal, but you grab one of the US NTDP guys or, or the skill guy at nine and then with pick 17, if you can couple that with, you know, one or some of your other assets, especially those second round picks and grab another one of those players, depending on how much you can move up, like imagine the Red Wings walk away with Wood and Leonard or Moore and Perot or like that would be an excellent haul. Grabbing two of the four USNTDB guys, me and Scott are on the same wavelength. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're saying this and and the Scott mentioned that the Red Wings haven't gone to the USNTDP well too many times, but then. I, I will say, I don't think that's because they're averse to it. I think it's just, they just haven't been in range really to grab those guys. Yeah, I was going to say, who was the last guy that the, like, true USNTDB guy that they didn't pick that ended up being like a grand slam, whereas it was an obvious they should have picked him instead? Because the last, for me, the last really, truly great NTDB kid they passed on that they could have picked was Zegris. And, then, and they still made the right pick. So took Mo Sider there. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't, you know, could you argue Sanderson over Raymond? I wouldn't, but some might. In the year they took Edvinson, who was the next USNTDP player, Tyler Boucher. Yeah, and he was a massive reach at 10. And that pick has aged horribly for Ch- Ottawa. Chaz Lucius went at 18. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's... So again, it's not like they're not going to the NTDP. It's just been the options where they pick are not even in consideration for the best option. Again, outside of Zegers, but Zegers was still the second best pick at that pick. Uh, something about the draft that I, uh, I think the last episode, someone sent me a note that I uh, was using the term late birthday and overager uh, interchangeably, which I should not have been doing. So I want to clarify something. When we talk about late birthday in the NHL draft, essentially what we're talking about is a player who's played an additional year in junior because he wasn't eligible for the his peers, a lot of his peers' draft year. So to be eligible for the NHL draft, uh, any North American player who turns 18 by September 15th and does not turn 20 by December 31st is eligible. So if you are turning 18 on September 16th, you are pushed to the next year's draft. And thus... You are playing junior uh, or whatever league a year longer. You're bigger. You're stronger. Uh, you're you're older than the guys you're playing against on average, and thus you should perform better. So sometimes that produces inflated statistics, performances, and folks. Then, like Brad, you say a lot. You you do get concerned about late birthdays because of that. Yeah, like again, I know that was in relative to Danielson, who has less production than some of the other CHL players that are projected in the same range as him. And he's a year older than all of them. So that's 
that's where I get concerns, at least in terms of, you know, when you're looking at offensive ceiling. Because if you want to look at, you know, I think I use the example of Cal Ritchie and Nate Danielson as like, okay, these guys are very similar in terms of where they might go, you know, what whatever. Uh, Cal Ritchie's a 2005, Danielson's a 2004, and that is significant in yeah. this context. These are formative years, not just in their growth physically, but the development of their game as well. I also mentioned North American players. It also applies to non-North American players. They can be drafted at any age, I've, but they still have to be 18 by September 15th. So there's just the, uh, the within 20 cap in there that changes. Uh, okay. The World Championships, a quick update on what the Red Wings uh, players are doing there. Uh, Dominic Kubelik, three goals, three assists over there, which says uh, he's doing great uh, for Czechia. Valeno with two goals and three assists. Uh, Berggren uh, has three helpers to his name. Raymond has a goal and assist and uh, two shootout goals. Pretty sweet performance by him. Carter Mazur has a goal and assist, including a, a great rip from uh, open space in the slot today. That was a sneaky good release. Yeah, he's got a really, really good release. So... If- if he turns into a guy who's really good around the net and can be dangerous from anywhere in the home plate area, that really opens up uh, options in terms of how they want to use him. And uh, Sider has a helper and Mata has a couple, I believe. So uh, lots of Red Wings to follow there, performing well. Conference finals. All happening very south in North America. Uh, Carolina, Florida. Just like we all predicted. Vegas, Dallas. Like a lot of people actually predicted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that Vegas, Dallas, to me right now, it, it genuinely feels like the, whoever comes out of that series, provided that they don't kill each other, is going to be the favorite to win the cup, right? I would agree with how banged up Carolina is right now. That's, that's probably a fair statement. But Carolina has just been getting better and better as their playoff run has gone. At the same time, how do you discount Florida, who has been a king killer, what, twice now, depending on how much you really believed in, in Toronto? But every team, and Dallas might be the perfect team on paper that's left. If you're like, I, I genuinely don't know how to handicap this in terms of way, which team is is favored, but. I'll go ahead and say the eight seed is the underdog and everybody else is reasonable. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> that, but then again, like, okay, you're taking Carolina over Florida and how many games? I didn't say that. Okay, so what are you? I might be, uh, I, but I would say Florida is probably the only team I would classify as an underdog out of, you know, against Carolina, they're an underdog. If they make the finals, they'd be the underdog. I don't think Dallas or Vegas can be considered an underdog in that series. And I don't think they'd be considered an underdog if either of them made the finals. So I don't know. I it's a really really fun matchup because Florida's on a heater. Um, I'm still taking Carolina because I just I don't have faith in Bobrovsky. So I'll say Carolina in six. I understand how good Bobrovsky's been, but like he's always kind of been inconsistent. So two bad games in that series could be torched for them, or he goalies them. He could. Which, it's very much in the range of possibility. How are you feeling about them? Yeah, that series, I, you know, do you go with Florida, who's kind of excelled at being an underdog and has really embraced that role? You go with Carolina, who's, you know, sort of defied the odds in terms of, oh, well, they're injured, but somehow they've made it all the way through, you know, Florida's done a lot to inspire me, and they've hit the hit the their stride. 
at the perfect time. And, you know, maybe playing Carolina is sort of like releasing the, the parachute and they can just run free at this point. I'll go uh, Florida in seven. Whoa. I was going to make the point that Carolina's only lost three games these whole playoffs, but then Florida's only lost four. <laughs> They're going to make us both look stu- all, th- all of us look stupid when they go in and actually, you know, beat whoever comes out of the West. Oh, that could happen. I think I'm going to buy into the Bobrovsky heater as well. Hell yeah. I think Let's I'm going to go, go Florida in seven. I, I, is Carolina favored? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Has Carolina been b- getting better and better? And does Rod Brindamore have that team You're running through a wall right now? Absolutely. Getting goalied is like a, a armor piercing shell. Like that can ruin anyone. And I think if Bobrovsky is doing that, then he can disrupt. That said, that might be the hottest take I have of all playoffs, and my bracket has been insanely wrong <laughs> from the moment I picked it. So Florida in seven, knowing I'll be I'll look like an idiot. Like I, I'm also kind of going by the 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 universe against the Leafs theory here too, which is out of this series, what's the worst case scenario for the Leaf fans? And Freddie Anderson backstopping a team to the cup final, I think is very high up that list. So the universe will will it into existence. That is a fantastic point, Brad. <laughs> and then Dallas Vegas. I, what kind of informed opinion can you have about that one? Like Jack Eichel, and as a Jack Eichel truther, I am so smug about this, but I'm so happy he's he's at the head of the Con Smythe conversation. And then you have Dallas, who who beat a very tenacious Seattle team, who put them to to the test. Like I'm gonna say Vegas, and I just don't see how it's not seven games. Yeah, I think seven games is probably the most realistic guess of what you could do in this series because the teams are so evenly matched. You know, I, I think I said before we even start uh, started our playoff brackets, like, why is nobody talking about Vegas? It seems like nobody's talking about Vegas. Did everybody forget they finished first in the West? And sure enough, here they are cruising to the conference final. So I'm going to stay on my Vegas bandwagon and I'll take them in seven as well. Yeah, this one's tough because I love the goaltending that Jake Ottinger provides Dallas, but I like Vegas as a team better. I think they play as a better as a team. Um, they play, I feel like, with better structure. But man, I find it so hard to bet against Dallas, but I also find it incredibly difficult to go against Vegas after <laughs> they've kind of just run run every team's show so far. Uh, just to be different, I'll say Dallas in seven, but I don't like that at all. I also kind of want to want to see Dallas and Florida go to the final just to watch old hockey men articles explode when it's Florida versus Texas in the cup finals. <laughs> okay. The thing about Jake Ottinger is generally, I, I agree with you, Evan. He's struggled. 903 save percentage, 275 goals, in, goals against average. Like he's not been on form and... His performance was a big reason why they they had that scare against Seattle. So I'm a big believer in the hot hand in the playoffs, and I can absolutely see you know an Aiden Hill lifting the cup in the in the Stanley Cup Finals just because he got hot for the right 12 to 16 game stretch. Obviously, Brassois got injured, so that that's how he factored in. But he's come in. He has a 9.34 save percentage, 2.19 goals against average in five games. Like that's what wins you series. So credit to him. If Ottinger doesn't figure it out and Vegas isn't going to be an easy team to figure it out against, that's what concerns me. But I, I do agree. The way 
Dallas is constructed on paper. That's a team who, by all rights, should be poised to, to make a cup run. The West is strong. Like for the East, I see teams who have like flashes or certain aspects of their of their teams that are like really fantastic, and that's how they overcame the the hurdles of of New Jersey or uh, Toronto or Boston or whatever. But the West, I just see complete teams that are just tanks built for playoffs. Yeah, yeah. And think of those markets like Dallas, Florida, Carolina, Vegas. First of all, Vegas back deep in the playoffs. The league is, you know, laughing all the way to the bank about that one. But those are, you know, non-traditional hockey markets. And as a hockey purist, as a hockey traditionalist, whatever that means, I I love that. That is incredible. That is exactly what the game needs. Yeah, if Toronto's there or Chicago's there or Boston's there, original six team is there, that's like printing money. But there's nothing better for a a new market or a non-traditional market to cement fans and to watch that team win because it's the greatest game on earth. And to to uh, a playoff run is the most fun you can have in North American sports in my mind. This is the better investment for the long-term future of the league. You know, a Boston or Toronto makes more money now, but growing a bigger fan base in a Florida, Carolina, whatever is better for the sport overall. Um, you know, especially considering of the four teams. That are left, two of them have never won a Stanley Cup, and of the teams that have won a Stanley Cup, the most recent one was Carolina all the way back in 2006. That's insane. So either way, someone is getting some, there are going to be a healthy amount of adult fans who won't remember their team winning the Cup that will get to do that this year no matter who wins. All right. Uh, That's all for now. We're going to jump into overtime. Overtime is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast if you want to support the show. Again, you help the growth of the show. Uh, the Jamie Daniels Foundation and our support of them, uh, our expanded content universe, like expected by whom. Uh, and you get benefits like our bonus episodes, our Patreon exclusive uh, Discord, and uh, you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. So, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Some questions here. Jefferson Steelflex says Can you guys explain why Oliver Moore is ranked higher than Gabe Perot? On so many mocks. I get that Moore is a center and Perot has better line mates, but he has nearly 60 more points in only two more games, and he is even a few months younger. If you threw positional preference out the window and just went for best player, do you take Perot? This is a tools thing. You know, um, Moore is the 200-foot the burner, right? So there's a very easy way to project him into the NHL, whereas Perot, you're really counting on his his brain and his sense to carry him, which... I'm a big believer in like that is something I absolutely subscribe to. Um, but his tools, you know, his skating and his shot aren't as projectable. Well, Moore doesn't have a great shot, but uh, his skating definitely isn't projectable to the NHL, whereas Oliver Moore's is. So I don't know if it's a certainty thing versus an upside thing. I'm fully comfortable with either of them at nine. Um, Oliver Moore is way more a Detroit type, but I think the Red Wings need a Gabe pro a little bit more. So, you know, I guess it just kind of depends on your, your faith in translatability with uh Perot's tools. Detroit, a Ed day Ingsway. Thank you for that. Says uh, with the news out of Tempe, it looks like it's very probable that the coyotes are going to have to move my condolences to their fans. They didn't deserve to be put through the ringer for so long. What do you guys think the timeline is for relocation? Are the Coyotes still in Arizona at the start of the season? Is there a chance that the team will be relocated before the summer's draft? Okay, I'm glad you asked that question because I forgot to bring it up earlier because it's relevant. Um, 
The last time something like this happened was when Atlanta went to Winnipeg. That move was announced, I believe, on May 31st. So there is a reality the Coyotes will be out of Arizona by this season. However, Winnipeg had a, a hockey arena ready to go immediately. I don't think any of the potential suitors outside of Quebec City do to the point where, you know, Houston and, and Salt Lake City have NBA arenas, but again, to retrofit them for hockey might not be viable. So I still think the most likely scenario is they play out next season in Arizona, but it does give them more time to do their due diligence and allow bidders to better accommodate an NHL team on that timeline. The Angry Ginger says with the Gudis contract coming up, could you see Eisenman going after him to get rid of the need for Osterley, Lindstrom, and Hag? Would it have to be as bad of a contract as Sherratt's to get him? Are there any similar players in this free agency class that would make more sense and be more affordable? Could it could see it being fun having Slider Wallman, Gudis Edvinson, and Sherratt Mata? Gudis will command a premium. The longer he goes in the playoffs, the more of a premium he'll get because he is on the face of a lot of Florida's success. Hate him or not, he's effective. Um, I almost think he might be overpaid, not in actual dollars, but relative to value. He might be overpaid more than Severson will be this UFA class. That said, I would still love Ratko Godas on the Red Wings. And I don't think his contract will be to what Ben Sherratt's is, mainly like just because he didn't have the rep, and I think he's a little older than Sherratt was when Sherratt signed his contract. Ratko uh, Gudas turns 33 this summer. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for someone comparable, I know Scott Mayfield's been brought up a lot. Again, not a one-to-one comparison, but kind of kind of the closest you're going to get here. Mm-hmm. Matt McKay says, hey guys, what would it take to get Keller from the Coyotes and would the juice be worth the squeeze? Um, well, in my hypothetical trade proposal, it is, but... <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a tough one. I would, uh, the Red Wings desperate, desperately need someone like a Clayton Keller, so it would make a ton of sense to trade for a Clayton Keller. Uh, the price would be steep. But the Red Wings are so loaded with assets and the Coyotes do want futures. This is a trade that could also make a ton of sense. And for what it's worth, I've been on the Nick Schmaltz train for a while and I still am. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. And last one here, uh, Brian Graham says, let's play what if. What if we had gotten Lafreniere back in 2020? How much better do you think he'd he'd be if he had been drafted by Detroit and gotten top six minutes consistently? Also, what if we tried to trade for him now? What would it take? I just need some comfort after the lottery last week, so I want to imagine a better world. That's an interesting one, and it's tough because Lafreniere has not performed anywhere close to being a first overall pick, and he was supposed to be a really good first overall pick too, like one of the better ones. Late birthday. Still. I can't help but shake that something is in the water in New York and whatever they did with their prospects just hasn't worked. I have to imagine there was more that could be had from Lafreniere this early. Now, what we're left with is this. I don't know if he's redeemable. I don't know if you run it back with another team that you don't run into the same thing because it's actually all on Lafreniere rather than just some. I don't know. But I, I, I genuinely can't shake the feeling that yeah, if another team had done it in a different way, he would have excelled more. He was just too good coming in. He was too good coming in to be this. Not, he's not bad, but he's not first overall pick. You could probably get him for the 17th overall pick, I would guess. And we've talked about that before. Do you do it? I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't be upset if they did. 
But God, for me, this is the impossible question because it's it's right on that fringe. Like, how does the draft board break down? You know what I mean? Yep. Would I trade Oliver Moore straight up for Alexi Lafreniere right now? I would not. If Oliver Moore and Sandine Pelica and you know player X, Y, and Z that I really like are off the board. Yeah. Okay. Then I don't love anybody there. Of course I would trade that pick for him, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's a, it's see, here's the, this is how you know it's a good trade proposal when you're conflicted. Always remember that if you propose a trade in your head and you go, I do that in a heartbeat, it's a bad trade proposal. It's hard because the production's not there, like a quarter of a point per game ish last season. A little bit more than that. That's hard to say, yeah, you want to trade 17th overall for. But if any part of you believes that there's, A, a lot more development to come, which you should because he's young, and B, there's more that's been really left on tap there, he's still young. You can still extract that. I don't I don't know that you're banking on first overall pick performance, but... And also, in a normal draft, 17th overall usually does not equate a star. That usually equates like a third liner. That's like, right. So you, you have to keep value... With that perspective in mind, and Alexi Lafreniere is already that, but this isn't a normal draft. So you also have to keep that in the back of your mind. Anyhow, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you all so much. Next episode is going to be a, uh, we're going to run back the schedule from this week. So it's going to be another Monday, Thursday posting. Uh, so appreciate everyone uh, bearing with us as we adjust our, our schedules as the throws of the summer come through, but it doesn't mean we're bringing you any less great content. Uh, as always, thank you all so much for tuning in. For those of you who support on Patreon, it means the world. Uh, if you want to support in other ways and can't support on Patreon, give us a rating. Wherever you listen to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, give us a rating and subscribe. It makes a big difference for us when you do, do those things. So uh, to all of our listeners, new and old, we appreciate you. And to all of our name-level supporters on Patreon, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Leafson9, Icon, We Are Geelong, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, The Hat123, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landiscog, Bros Before Hosas, Carl Brutanen and Oluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Cooking with Kosa, Coyote Season Tickets in Anywhere But Tempe. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek N. Stam, DJ Denton, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Qasem, I Miss Cronwall, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan the Ryan Hannah Hannah, Scott Martin, That's What I Appreciate's About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, Number 1 Red Guys Fan, A.A. Ron, Adam Gowitska, Adam Rose, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, C.J. Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, I Can't Decide on My Next Patreon Name, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Matt Keeler, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, O. Ophelia, Steven, Tatarsas, The Hodag, The Original Button of Lemon, and The St. Louis Blueth. Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you Monday. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.